Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Good morning, everyone. It's so lovely to see you all this morning. Uh, my name's Jess Scully, and I want to start out by acknowledging that we're meeting on Gadigal land today and to extend respect to elders past and present of the Eora Nation, uh, to acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded over this place and to acknowledge the next generation of First Nation storytellers um, that are coming through as part of this festival, in this community and in this place. Um, I um, also want to welcome our super special guest, Jenny O'Dell. I'm so excited about this one. Um, You know, Jenny is an author, an artist, um, a professional noticer, um, you know, a person who is just as likely to quote Futurama as Hannah Arendt. And I feel very at home in your work. Um, And uh, so I'm really, really excited and grateful that you took the time and you came all the way here to, to hang out with us. Uh, so, uh, my, if you don't know me, um, my name's Jess Scully. I'm an author. I wrote a book called Glimpses of Utopia. I kind of do the policy half of the of the stuff that Jenny talks about, um, and uh, and I'm also like a, just a pro- professional free range busybody um, who cares about place. So I think we're going to have a good chat. Um, Jenny, I kind of feel like we've been sitting in your 2003 Corolla. For the past couple of weeks. Um, Why is that? Like, tell us about this journey you've taken us on with Saving Time. Yeah, so um, the the book Saving Time is formatted as a one-day out and back road trip starting in Oakland. It actually starts in the place where How to Do Nothing ended, which is the Oakland port. So at the end of How to Do Nothing, I mentioned there being a restored marsh that has a lot of shorebirds. And so that's actually part of the Oakland port. So the book starts there and sort of, imagines that you, the reader, and I are in my 2003 Corolla, which is my car from high school, um, and we are stopping in a different place in each chapter. So industri- we talk about industrial time at the port, um, kind of time, personal time management in a traffic jam on 880, which is one of the most hated freeways in the Bay Area. <laughs> um, and then we talk about leisure at a park, talk about geological time at a beach, and, and so on. Um, and then you eventually end up back in Oakland thinking about mortality at a cemetery. So um, it's it's really, uh, you know, that's a very old story technology to put things in, in places. Um, I mean, somewhat cynically, I thought it would make it easier to remember <laughs> um, if you could just kind of go on that chip in your head because that's an experience that, that I've had. Yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed that. And I think because your work uh, is so embodied in place. And in How to Do Nothing, you talk about placefulness. So can you tell us what that, what that means? Yeah, I, I mean, I think in How to Do Nothing, that was really a reaction to um, like a kind of feeling of disembodiment and also placelessness that I was experiencing when I was spending a lot of time, say, on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, I describe in that book kind of learning more and more about my bioregion. I grew up in the Bay Area, but... I would say that for a large part of my adult life, I didn't really know it. Mm. Um, And then I think, so that's, that strand is continued in saving time, um, you know, through this road trip and this act of close observation. But also part of the reason I relied on that in saving time was um, I think there's a risk with some of the things that I'm talking about in the book that they seem abstract. Mm. 
you know, like talking about n the idea of non-fungible time or non-linear time um, or, or things that seem very historical, right? Like people think of industrial time as a thing of the past, which it's really not. Um, and I think by, by placing um, these ideas in places, I wanted to, you know, kind of throughout the chapter point out as if you and I are walking around or driving around evident, like concrete everyday evidence of these things, right? Mm -hmm. Like they're not separate from everyday life. They actually inform everything about everyday life. Yeah. And you start to see the layers of time more when you're reading Saving Time uh, because of the way that you sort of daylight and highlight a lot of that. Um, the, the invisible embodiment and representation of time. And um, there's a lot of ideas in How to Do Nothing that have followed through and they feel like companions. If you haven't read Saving Time yet, uh, there's a lot from, from How to Do Nothing that carries through. But there's one concept from How to Do Nothing that I think has transformed my thinking the most. And um, it's this idea of the I-it or the I-thou and I now, I was telling you earlier, like I kind of do this cognitive behaviour therapy on myself all the time now. And I'm like, no more I it, I thou. Um, and I catch myself when I'm, when I'm doing it. But can you explain that distinction and, and how that carries through? Yeah, yeah. So um, that was a concept that I mentioned in How to Do Nothing from uh, Martin Buber, who wrote about um, these two ways of basically relating to other beings and things in the world. Um, he, his example is of a tree. And he kind of describes all these ways that you could relate to a tree, like you could think about it as a, you know, like an, an example of a species, or you could think about it sort of like mathematically, or like all these different lenses that you could have on the tree. Um, and then he distinguishes all of them from basically seeing the tree as a tree, like a tree that is, has the same sort of reality that you do, um, and sort of is almost like its own center of gravity. Um, and so like for, for me, like that, that's... Uh, or for him, that's a description of I, thou, and then I, it would be a much more instrumental way of relating to things. So for me, that would be like con anything consumerist, right? Like, uh, or, or even the way um, I think of like music being recommended in an algorithm, like a Spotify algorithm, it's like you like it or you don't like it, or you like this more than you like this, but it, everything sort of remains in that realm of, of it. Um, I think I would, I would describe I, thou as being an encounter. Like yeah. when you feel like you really have an encounter with something that feels alive. And that ends up, yeah, getting carried into saving time because one of the things that I talk about is who and what we afford experience to. Um, so do you afford experience to a tree, for example? Um, do you think that other things have their own experience of time? Um, and that that's a very different way of imagining time than just seeing it as kind of like empty stuff that's all around us and that only humans are kind of actors on the historical stage. It's like a when you have that main character syndrome, yeah. basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you guys come across this idea of main character syndrome. It's like uh, the idea that everyone else is a supporting cast for the main character. And, and we have this I-it thinking is kind of that on a societal scale. Um, and when you start noticing I-it thinking in yourself and then, you know, in the way that we perceive the world, it's this, an encounter open with possibility in I-thou or this instrumental view of the world um, in I-it, where it's like everything is here to serve my end, my purpose, this function. And when you start noticing that, you kind of see the wellspring of this colonising, terra nullia, sort of extractive 
view of the world that has become the dominant frame for us to see the world, um, both like through centuries of Western expansion, through capitalism. Uh, it's, it's kind of hard to, it's hard to see around it. But I think one of the things that's, that's beautiful about your first and your second books is that you're giving us ways to sort of see around the I-it that has swollen up to consume so much of our thinking. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely what I am trying to do. And I, I often think of it as, um, you know, like, it's like sometimes I've been asked in interviews, like, oh, should we just like throw away clocks or something, you know, like, and I'm like, no, I think like if you, if you think about um, all the different languages that we have for time, one of them is clock time, but we also understand things like um, bodily time. Uh -huh. I mean, I'm <laughs> on this trip, like I'm very aware of that. Um, or, you know, seasonal time, micro seasons, like we, like these are things that actually, even though they're kind of drowned out a lot of the time, like we still have, have deeply like intuitive access to. Mm. So I often think of it in terms of like, um, trying to like quiet a signal so you can hear a different signal. Yeah. I think in your writing and in your art practice, I want to talk about your art practice a little bit. Um, you, you sort of daylight this like invisible architecture, the scaffolding um, around the, the systems that we sort of see as that's just the way things are um, or uh, these assumptions that we, that we think are a bedrock but are actually very recent constructions mm -hmm. like time. And I want to talk a bit about how recent time is soon as well, which is um, I found astonishing. Um, but who here has encountered Jenny's art practice? Like, um, there, there's some extraordinary, extraordinary work there. And uh, there's almost too many uh, things to talk about there. But I wanted to talk about Power Trip, uh, which is a project of yours from maybe 10 years ago. Uh, and in it, you, you actually follow the transmission pipes and lines for the San Francisco Municipal Power System. Yeah. Um, and and there's, I, I just want to quote something that you say about it. And you're now, she's talking about a power line here, just so you know. It was this characteristic of the system, so vulnerable, so unlikely, with its spindly structures making complicated manoeuvres through dense suburbs and famously large mountains, just so that a bus in San Francisco could open and close its doors. That struck me the most. To a person completely unacquainted with contemporary civilization, it would seem obvious that the towers and pipes are monuments. Um, the Kirkwood Penstock's vertical drop being totally baffling to the eye, describable only as sublime. Instead, my curiosity about a public good and my camera simply aroused suspicion. <laughs> um, so I imagine it can be a bit overwhelming and does sort of arouse suspicion when you start pulling the thread about all these connections, right? But, but what do we actually gain from interrogating all of these invisible infrastructures? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, like the initial draw is just curiosity. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's the immediate gain, um, which is maybe, as you can tell from that, it's not a, I cannot modulate that for myself. <laughs> so that's just kind of on all the time. But then I think what it, it um, eventually leads you to is um, this moment, sometimes of crisis, where you realize how arbitrary something is, like it, that it didn't need to be that way. And then if you can get past that, then you get to the sort of realization that, um, not that like anything can be anything, but that there's actually maybe much more latitude in the present than you thought, right? Like if, if you can't, it's like, if I can't take that for granted, then what can I take for granted? Mm. And then you might sort of realize that um, things don't, you know, things don't have to be the way they are as much as you thought they did like a moment ago. 
Um, so yeah, I would say that's the, that's the ultimate gain, but I think um, I'm just thinking of a conversation that I had with this, the author who has an eerily similar name to me, Jess Nordell. Right. <laughs> um, she wrote a, an amazing book called The End of Bias. And I remember having this phone conversation with her after we had, you know, she had finished her book. And we were kind of like, sometimes we both would like lie awake at night and be like, do I, do I know anything? You know, like, what does it mean to know something? So, like, it's, it can be, like, deeply unsettling. Yeah, when you take that, like, little thread and you start pulling on it and you're like, well, then why? It's like when you hang out with a little kid and they're like, mm. well, why is it like that? And then you answer, well, why is it like that? And eventually you're going to end up somewhere really weird. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, this is kind of, that's what artists do, right? And, and, and um, you know, I, I love the way that art and art practice is such a big part of your writing. You know, it's kind of, it's, it's really core to your writing. Um, and your way of explaining ideas in the world and, and you write about doubt um, and in, in saving time and in how to do nothing. And you say that simply as a gap in the known, doubt can be the emergency exit that leads somewhere else. But we've come to have this quite fraught relationship with the idea of doubt. We kind of see it as uncertainty and, and fear, or we, 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 we approach it with fear, but that's kind of what artists do, right? They, can you talk about why and how art is such a big part of your writing? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I actually, one way of explaining this might be um, an experience that I just had. I was doing a workshop um, at the Auckland Writers Festival mm -hmm. where I, um, they were, I have to thank the participants for indulging me in this, but I made them watch 10 minutes of a video of just a street, like where people are just like walking, you know, and then there's like a crosswalk. And it's based on a part of Saving Time uh, about George Perec, who is a French author who did something similar. He kind of like observed a square in Paris and wrote down everything that happened. And, um, and one thing that we talked about afterwards was that many people had had the experience of being really resistant to it for about two minutes. Like, I don't want to be doing this or like... Uh, why are you what, doing this to me? Yeah, why are you doing this to me? What, what, like this is just a street with people on it. And then after about two minutes, it would flip over to something else where you start, you start to get... It starts to seem very rich. Like it seems like there's a lot happening on the street. And then, and then about like eight minutes and you don't want it to ever end, <laughs> you know? Um, and uh, it was really gratifying for me because some of the art pieces that I had shown them right before that were basically doing that, like... Um, they are pieces that I mentioned in How to Do Nothing, like, um, you know, John Cage, 433, which is like, not, you know, the, nothing is played, but it's actually the sounds in the room are the piece. Um, my, my good friend's piece, Applause Encouraged, where people were ushered into an area on, a, on the edge of a cliff in San Diego with, a, with the little like theater kind of tape around it. They, um, they're not allowed to have their phones. They watch the sunset, they applaud, and then refreshments are served. Like, it's kind of like a format of an art piece that creates a window and then just kind of asks you to, to watch it for, or makes it easy for you in some way to watch it for more than two minutes. Mm. Um, and I think that it, it helps someone over that initial barrier of um, impatience. Because I think there's a lot about our perception that probably it's always, you know, been a little bit impatient and, and controlling, but it's, it seems really exacerbated by the amount of information that you're taking in and the way it's presented. And so anything that we can do to kind of hold that window open is really important. And, and I suppose like directing people's attention 
um, giving people a reason to direct and a format to direct their attention um, when we we live in a time when we're assaulted with so many um, demands on our attention. Uh, that's part of what art does. And you write about David Hockney as well and the mm. way that his work brings your attention to the multiple layers and perspectives in a moment um, in a way that then people leave the gallery um, in the works that the video work you're talking about and they see the parkland in a different way and they see their environment in a different way as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think something that I was trying to do in saving time was, you know, there was so much about the pandemic that was so terrible, but it was also an interruption. I mean, it was an interruption in, in such a different way for different people. But I think I was hoping that in a similar way that there were maybe things that had become a little bit dislodged or like un, unfamiliar um, or yeah, just kind of questionable in a way that they hadn't been before um, and that you couldn't unsee. You know, and mm. I think I was trying to seize upon that and seize, seize on the opportunity to question those things. Yeah. And, uh, and this kind of powerful, positive, creative potential of doubt uh, as, a, as opposed to the uncertainty and the, um, the, the, the way that we see doubt as sort of laden with risk rather than possibility, um, I think is something really beautiful from your writing. Yeah. And I also have to say, you know, like I'm obviously from the U.S., like, uh, I haven't been out of the country in a really long time, and I, I've been having that experience of, um, you know, like things that are done a certain way in the U.S. that are not done that way here, right? <laughs> it's like, I know, I mean, I know that, but it's very different to actually see it and be in the midst of it and be in a place where people take a different thing for granted, mm. you know, like something that I don't take for granted. And it, you know, it doesn't make it less challenging for me to go home and try to change that thing, but it, it's like you've seen something that was different and it permanently changes how you view that problem. Yeah. Uh, I think that that sort of hopeful definition of doubt makes me think about a distinction that you talk about in Saving Time between Kronos and Kairos. Uh, and it, it's sort of counterintuitive, again, to, to those of us who find, who think that we find comfort and safety in this idea of certainty, of, of evenly broken down, linear time. Um, and instead you talk about how in Kairos, which is in theory the more chaotic one, you find this lifeline, this hopefulness in that. Can you tell us a bit about the, that distinction? Yeah, so um, Kronos and Kairos are two ancient Greek words for time. Um, Kronos, you know, from chrono like chronology uses Kronos, um, of the two is the more linear one. Um, it's kind of like, I think of it as being like the linear historical timeline or just kind of like everyday time. Um, and then Kairos is the sort of um, the, the interruption, the sort of moment of action when, when people say like seize the time. That's kind of what I think of as being Kairos. Um, a lot of climate writers and activists have, have referenced Kairos as being a really helpful concept for um, combating a sense of climate dread, mm. like seeing seeing a time as a moment of, of like great importance and opportunity where like a lot is happening. Um, the other example that I always think of with Kairos is um, Rebecca Solnit's book, um, The Disaster One, what is it called? I'm blanking on it. Paradise Built in Hell. Yeah, yeah Paradise yeah, yeah. Built in Hell, um, which is I'm, a book in which she interviews people about past um, man-made and natural disasters and how in, you know, obviously those are, those are terrible things, but in the aftermath, people 
might be meeting their neighbors for the first time. They, they kind of step up. They, they do things that they didn't think they were capable of. And that even some of the people that she interviews are nostalgic for that time. Mm. Um, and then it sort of collapsed back into mm. Kronos. And at the end of the book, she kind of asks, like, is there a way to hold that kind of possibility open without the impetus being a disaster? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, my book first came out in the, the middle of the pandemic and um, it felt like this is a moment. Like, we finally realized that we're that this whole idea of the economy is actually built on a human underpinning, you know, a society has to function, people have to be healthy, people have to take care of each other, we have to value care. This is the moment um, when we can have a care-led recovery. And we didn't get that, but the possibility is still open. Um, you explored this idea of the of the gap, the the kind of possibility of the moment of action, in a a, a speech that you gave at town hall on Thursday. This letter to the future, um, and you said that we each live in a present, a space for action. And you talk about Hannah Arendt's idea of inhabiting a non-time, the gap between the past and the future that only exists if we hold it open with our imagination. So. Can you tell us about why we need non-time right now and, and holding that gap open? Yeah, I, th I think some of that was informed by something that I was personally feeling, but I was also observing among my students. So I mm. taught college students for eight years and because it was an art class, um, and not, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that it was like therapy, but <laughs> like I, I knew what they were thinking about because they were making art about it. And um, I saw a lot of, despair yeah. um, and a lot of uh, kind of inability to think about the future that felt really, um, which is already, you know, terrible, but then it was combined with being overworked. Yeah. So it was this kind of like, I'm, I'm racing against the clock, but I also feel like I'm at the end of time. And it was just something I was observing among them. So um, I think I, I was a little bit desperate to find like something, something different from that. And um, I really love that, that Hannah Arendt, like it's basically a, an introduction to one of her books where she talks about holding this space open and she says that every generation has to discover it anew, that, that no, you can't pass it down to the next generation, that basically every generation will find itself in a moment um, that hopefully they would perceive as a moment of action mm -hmm. and that obviously we want to be informed by history and the things that like have worked and haven't worked, um, but, but that you don't, you wouldn't want to extrapolate from that that you could predict what will happen and you certainly don't want to see the future as a foregone conclusion either. And I think there's a really big temptation right now. Like, I just think people are tired and it's almost easier to just give up, right? Like, or, or give up on some scale, right? Like, oh, I'm going to make my, I'm going to take care of my friends and try to live a beautiful life. And the rest is just kind of like lost. And, I, and it's too much grief for me to handle. So I'm just not going to do that versus the kind of like waking up every day. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to try. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the sparks of why I wrote my book is like I, I did this workshop with this amazing organization called Story Factory. They have a stand in the lobby, by the way, if you haven't already uh, gone and got a prescription from them yet. Um, and uh, I, um, I I got to speak to a bunch of 13 and 15-year-old um schoolgirls in, um, you know, a part of Sydney where, like, it was a bit, it was a bit much from a narrative perspective. Like, I looked out the window of the um, this classroom we were in and there was the hospital I was born in. Like, next door it was like, this was you. Um, it, was, it was a bit heavy-handed from a narrative perspective, but that's what happened. And um, 
you know, there was this session, a workshop about the future, and I was there as a, a, a kind of a provocateur and, and talking to them about the future. And every one of them wrote the most depressing stories you could possibly imagine about the future. And I just thought, we are doing something wrong as a society if kids can't imagine a future that's worth being excited about. Um, and And so part of the work that I do is all about saying, we're not done yet. Like the future isn't written. We're in this, you know, which I had this, this idea of the gap of the non-time where we get to decide what that future is. Um, and you write about, you know, it, it's, it's um, the opposite of thinking deterministically, which you write about in Saving Time and about declinism. So can you, you tell us a bit about, about what declinism and de thinking deterministically is? Because I think we can experience it and see it in our world a lot, but we don't really often have language for it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think um, it's what it sounds like, right? Like declinism is just the the belief that inevitably things are going to get worse. Um, I, I was writing um, and researching that part of the book um, with the fires that we had in 2020 in mind in the Bay Area, there was, and I think there was something similar here. There was yeah, like a day where it was really dark. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I just remember like, you know, that was a sort of traumatizing event for people in the Bay Area. It was like, it, it was dark at 10 a.m. and then it got darker from yeah. between 10 and 11. And I describe in the book, like seeing my neighbor across the street um, working and I'm working and I can see her laptop like glowing, you know, because it's so dark outside. Um, and the, a lot of the language that I saw, it's perfectly understandable, right? Like people were like, sort of like, this is it, <laughs> you know, like, and there was a lot of apocalypse language. I still have to go to the yeah. meetings and the apocalypse yeah. is happening. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. 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 And, um, and like, I think that pain is, is very real, but I think there's also a really big risk with that, that, um, it's like a sort of, yeah, giving up too soon. Mm. Um, and also it's a little bit nostalgic. Um, sometimes I think like this a declinist view often goes hand in hand with the nostalgic view that things were better in the past for uniformly. Yeah. yeah. And then for, then the question is for whom? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's also like incredibly privileged to just be like, well, it's over. I'm just going to have a good time. <laughs> we'll be fine. We're moving to New Zealand or Tasmania if you're Australian. And, uh, and you know, you set up, a, you'll be, you'll do some permaculture and you'll be fine. Um, and, and not everyone gets that out. Um, but it's more than just lazy, you know, it's actually kind of dangerous and to, to, to head down that from a societal perspective to head down that path. And, and for activism and politics, we've kind of got to hold open the possibility of change or else, you know, how, how do you do anything? So how do you, do you have any ideas about how we interrupt that narrative and how we change this language in our conversations with each other and in our discourse? Yeah, I mean, one thing that comes to mind, um, I met uh, I met a climate activist in, in New Zealand who was, you know, older and had done, just been working for a long time. And, and one of the things that we talked about was um, when when you experience a victory, mm -hmm. you, you don't forget that. And so, like, I think it's really easy if you've, like, sort of lived your whole life seeing things only get worse and also not really being involved in them or feeling alienated, like you don't have any ability to, to affect those things. Um, to, it's, it's harder to imagine that things could change, but even like a very small thing, right? Like, for example, like being part of a, a union for even like a small, like, uh, you know, company or something like that, and you win something. Yeah. You know, like you're like, oh, this is actually, this is up for grabs. 
you know, um, and like this is actually the only way that it's going to change. Um, I think that's that's kind of an unforgettable experience. And so I think bringing, you know, I, I talked to some younger climate activists also at that same festival and they were kind of like, what what, what do we do with social media? And, and kind of like talking about maybe you use the social media to bring people to the place to have that experience that they don't forget. Um, and that kind of gives them the appetite to to try and get something bigger next time. And also understanding that you're, you might fail. You might not mm. get it. But but having that one experience of having mm. won something. Yeah. And I think you you also write about, you know, this this classic idea of activism, which is like your survival, your your struggle is, is interwoven with my own. Like this idea of us realising that everybody feels like this not just for individual time management reasons or individual doom reasons, but because we're all feeling this together at the same time. Yeah, I, I think there's something, um, I mean, I was really shocked by the fact that uh, the, the whole idea of the carbon footprint was an idea that came from fossil fuel companies, um, which is so smart, right? Yeah. Because that's, that's a very atomizing thing to do. It's like, you, you are an individual consumer and all you can do is make different consumer choices. That is the horizon of your possibility. It's like, no wonder people feel disempowered. Mm. There's not a lot you can do with that, you know? And, and the scale and, and like the, the scale of what you can do and the size of the problem is like, you can't recycle your way out of this problem. Yeah. Um, but you better try, you know, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think like that part of that, like, experiencing a victory is also seeing what is possible when you are linked up with other mm. people, right? Like, and that can change the the scale of power or the balance of power pretty quickly, just having people start talking to each other and working together. And that's what the carbon calculator is kind of trying to, <laughs> I think, like work against. I mean, that was kind of the idea in Saving Time that sort of shook my world the most was when you interrogated the label of the Anthropocene. Um, and... And it kind of blew it up for me. Um, and, you know, you wrote that the Anthropocene looks less like a descriptor and more like a symptom of a belief in a natural and timeless capitalist man and a helpless nature. And uh, it had never occurred to me that labelling this era that we are definitely in, in this way, makes it a sort of passive, inevitable uh, consequence you know, occurring to this inert system that cannot be changed. It's just the way it is. Uh, can you, you know, whose interest does that serve and, and how can we kind of rewire our language about this critical moment? Yeah. I mean, I definitely, I will say, like, I think obviously the the term, you know, Anthropocene mm. has a really important, yeah. you know, use sort of acknowledging that the, the scale of human, uh, human enacted, like, change um, but I, yeah, in that part of the book, I was picking up on indigenous, particularly indigenous critiques of the idea of the Anthropocene that see, um, you know, the anthro in Anthropocene as being like a, uh, what is it, like homo economicus, like a, like the all, like human mankind is just naturally selfish and exploitative. Yeah. And it's just kind of wreaking this havoc upon the earth and that there weren't specific contingent, you know, historical moments in which certain people act in certain ways, right? Um, and then it also, at the same time, um, reproduces that idea, that very colonial idea of the rest of nature being inert and helpless. Mm. Um, and uh, rather than seeing it as like a, a something that is dynamic, dynamic yeah. that that you could um, that could co-constitute change with humans, right? Mm. Yeah. So that I mean, that was a big thing for me too. Yeah. Just, yeah. 
Uh, and, and it's not, yeah, not rejecting the idea that we're in the Anthropocene, like that, that we are having this impact, but who is having this impact? Is, it's a very small subset of, of humans who are making active choices that lead to this outcome. And these are things that can change. Like these are not forces of nature. They are forces of culture and a, a set of choices, you know, economic choices and political choices by, from our society. Uh, but I, I also loved the way that you were able to make this connection, articulate this connection between this climate dread that we have, the, the fear that we have, and also this feeling of burnout and overwhelm that a lot of us feel in our lives. Like a lack of control over circumstances and a need that kind of gets internalised as a need to squeeze ourselves harder. And, you know, I always thought this was a generational thing. You know, I kind of thought it was like you're, when you're born at this moment in history when work has become more and more unfair and more precarious um, and, and our system less supportive and more lopsided um, and then people our age and younger being handed this burning planet through no control of their own. But you sort of see this connection as going much further back than Gen Y or Gen X or Gen Z. Yeah, the, one of my favorite, and I say favorite, like I, I'm a person who um, loves to, things that are so bad they're good. <laughs> and uh, so one of my favorite sources in Saving Time is this book called Increasing Personal Efficiency um, from from the 1920s. Oh, wow. Um, and it's, uh, it's basically written by a psychologist who's so obsessed with Taylorism. Um, I'm sure many people are familiar with Taylorism, but just kind of like very systematically breaking up factory work to make it go faster um, and take control away from the worker also, importantly. But um, he's so enamored with Taylorism that he wants to figure out how to basically tailorize your whole life and person. Um, he has this amazing weather map, which is reproduced in the book of uh, the U.S. of efficient weather zones, <laughs> which is completely unscientific. <laughs> um, and then he has a little note that's like, note that all of our great universities are in the efficient weather zone, you know? Make you um, think. Yeah, he has a speed. He has speed reading tests in the book. It's like it's incredible. <laughs> I really recommend checking it out because because it, you can see like the language is so bald, mm. right? Like it's and it's very one to one. Like I I I found that book in the same um, basically like community run library in San Francisco that has a lot of ephemera. I found it in the same same place as uh, Factory Magazine from the same time. The language is exactly the same. It's just that in one context, uh, it's written to a factory manager who's trying to get the most value out of their workers. And then in the other one, it's you are the factory manager mm. and you're trying to get the most out of your own hours. Well, I kind of feel like that's where we're at with this, uh, the, the, the spread of entrepreneurialism to this personal level when everyone, I'm, every person is a startup and, and everyone has to bootstrap it. Um, but one of my favorite things in Saving Time was when you describe, you explain the origins of this term bootstrapping. So, you know, bootstrapping is like very hot, kind of like very common startup term, but it actually doesn't mean what we think it's supposed to mean. Yeah, in, in the earliest, I think one of the earliest definitions of it, it's in, or it's, it's used in an old physics textbook, I think. Um, it was used as an example of something that's impossible. So to pull yourself up, it was, it was describing something impossible and it was like at, similar to pulling yourself up by your bootstraps because that's impossible. <laughs> it means something impossible. Because <laughs> you're like literally levitating. Yeah. Uh, so who did yeah. this to us? <laughs> yeah. How did this happen? Um, and, and yet 
it's become so internalized, right? And now I kind of feel like we do it to ourselves. Like I have a productivity bro and a girl boss living rent-free in my head. Um, and, and partly that's because, you know, I've been a freelancer for 20 years, um, but partly because that I've internalized a lot of this. And I was explaining earlier that I have Beyonce living in my head <laughs> and, and I beat myself up with Beyonce time um, which is ridiculous, I know, but she's about the same age as me and I feel like she gets more done every day. Um, and how did this happen? Like, and what can we do to get Beyonce out of our heads? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, like, for me, what some, something that was really helpful about looking at things like increasing personal efficiency and really seeing that link between industrial time and the way personal time management is written was seeing um, how ill-suited that notion of time as material mm -hmm. is for human beings, mm -hmm. right? Like, because um, yeah, that's the saying, right? Beyonce has 24 hours in a day. Like everyone has 24 hours in a day. There, were, there was time management being written at that time about how to make the most out of your 24 hours. Um, and obviously that quantitative view of time obscures a lot of things like relationships, support, where you are, what you have access to. Um, and I think once you start to think about time less in the sense of like hours in a box and more in terms of um, ties mm, mm. or influences, mm. like um, there's a really amazing scholar, Sarah Sharma, who I quote in the book, who she's, she's critical of this notion where when people say like everything's speeding up oh, everything's getting faster these days, right? It's fast. And she's sort of like, that's not necessarily the case. Like if you, it's more like if you think about the cab driver at the airport waiting for the jet setting businessman, or like you think about the, um, I don't know if you've seen Parasite, like if anyone here has seen that movie, but like the, the sort of helper family that's yeah. rushing to get everything um, ready in, in time because the, the family who lives there decided they're going to come home early, right? It's like, there, it's much more about um, who's, whose schedule whose you're time. on or how much your time is valued literally through a wage or, or just um, culturally, like women's work is typically not valued as much, right? So it, once you start thinking about those kinds of things and less like the, these like 24, I think of them as like cubes yeah. <laughs> of time, um, things start to make a lot more sense. And I think uh, you start to see more, I think, realistic ways of having more people have a more liberated or autonom autonomous sense of time. Yeah. I think in About a Boy, they, you know, they talk about um, that movie, like one unit of time is 30 minutes. And it's, it's <laughs> this sort of the fungible, interchangeable time, this idea that we all have the same time when structurally we don't. Like I don't have a vegan chef at home yeah. like Beyonce does or a squadron <laughs> of nannies. And, um, and those enablers uh, are, are part of what makes all of that possible. Um, I think here, if, if we had remembered to bring a book on stage. I know, I forgot I know, to we bring forgot, it. But um, we, I would have asked you to read uh, a bit about the alternative to um, can we get to fungible time? Has anyone got a copy of the book? Oh, amazing! Yes, yes thank you. Uh, well, you find it. I, I think there was uh, this this idea of of it, the I it view of the world that has sort of taken over, um, and this that's taken the form of the clock and spread. And I've heard you speak about linear time as this invasive species of time, which I love that description. But, you know, the thing that astonished me was just how recent this is. Like, this is not forever. This is a very recent development. Can you tell us about just how recent this is? 
Yeah, right. So, um, I mean, it depends on... There's a couple of things uh-huh. that are surprisingly recent. I mean, the idea of um, standardized clock time that's divorced from natural cues that could be, you know, and things like time zones and all of that, um, that's something that obviously w- went hand in hand with colonization. Like, that was exported. It literally is an invasive yeah. species of time. Um, and before that, I, like, I think time, like, timekeeping would have probably been thought much more of, like, as ti- what I would think of as timing. Like, things happen, like, a, an acute attention to when things happen in an environment and timing your activities to that. Um, and then and then you see this arrival of um, this notion of, yeah, like, man hours, which is very tied to labor and measuring the labor of other people. Um, but then also just wage, wage labor was surprisingly recent. I mean, the, I was surprised by that um, in the U.S., um, that it was it was hard to get people to do that because they didn't want to, uh, they, it was, it was compared to, I mean, they they would use the phrase like wage slavery, Mm. right? Like the idea that you sell your time instead of sell things that you make Mm. or, you know, something else, um, that, that actually required quite a bit of, um, discipline and like getting people into factories and and making them work there and yeah. And guilting and shaming, like, and kind of like, you know, that the, the, uh, attaching a moral equivalence to this idea of working very hard in a very specific way under specific kind of controls. Yeah, totally. And I think just generally, I think one thing that's it's helpful to sort of keep in mind is um, there are so many different ways of measuring and reckoning time. And there's so many languages for what time is. And every one of them has a goal, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like it suits the goal, right? Like if your goal is to... Um, like flourish in an environment, then you need to be very attentive to the cues of that environment. If your goal is to measure the labor of other people and try to get more out of them in less time, you will end up with things like spreadsheets and Taylorism. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so, and so recent that in like Greenwich Mean Time and that system is from 1850. Like time zones in the US are from 1883. Like this is not, this is not a natural system I have to kind of keep reminding myself this is a cultural system. Um, and so it's something that is open to change and open to influence and redirection. Um, and there are other ways of of um, counting time or measuring time, like the, the reading that um, yeah. maybe you can give us now. Okay. Yeah. And thank you again. <laughs> um, okay. Oh, and so this is in a, a, a chapter about, yeah, different languages of time. That um, the, the chapter or the setting for this chapter is actually that library that I found um, Factory Magazine and increasing personal efficiency in. Earlier this year, I was in the garden of a septuagenarian friend while she was planting some beans. She told me that they were descended from beans she'd gotten 20 years before from somewhere she couldn't quite remember, maybe Home Depot, and could never find again. At the time, she'd shared the beans with friends, all of whom loved them and couldn't find them anywhere else either. But some friends let the bean pods mature and dry out, saving the beans and giving them back to her. She had no idea how many people had them by now and speculated that this line of beans could have spread across the entire country. As she planted them, we mused that although there had been a give and take between her and her friends, it was not exactly transactional. She wasn't taking back the things she had given them, though the two were certainly related. She moved on to some lettuce beds, telling me I should take some lettuce. I thought she was just being polite, but she told me that she actually needed to get rid of the outside leaves so the inside leaves would keep growing before the plant reached maturity. 
She was constantly giving bags of lettuce to people, she said. This simple gesture and the story of the beans made me realize how broken my mental mechanisms were for thinking about anything beyond the transactional exchange. In part, this is because I've never lived anywhere I could garden. I'd sort of forgotten that a plant keeps growing, assuming that more lettuce leaves for me would mean fewer lettuce leaves for her. But that wasn't the only thing I'd forgotten. Philosopher Ivan Illich worried in 1978 that innumerable sets of infrastructures in which people coped, played, ate, made friends, and loved have been destroyed, leaving a barren social landscape of huge zero-sum games, monolithic delivery systems in which every gain for one turns into a loss or burden for another, while true satisfaction is denied to both. In that moment, I felt not dissimilar to the young gig worker who told sociologists in a study of why precarious workers didn't claim unemployment benefits during the pandemic in New York City, quote, you just sign up, say, I don't have a job, and the government gives you money? What is that about? If it was that easy, wouldn't everyone do it? Do it? I don't get it. Taking the lettuce was good for both me and my friend. I didn't get it. A few months later, I was sitting in a different garden, this time a botanical garden with free admission. Two kids had taken over a lawn next to me and were playing a game of red light, green light. Their version of it, however, was considerably more complex than the one I played as a kid. Red light still meant stop and green light still meant go, but for them, purple light meant to dance. Light blue light meant to dance backward. Golden light meant to fall on the ground and green tree light meant to moo and crawl at the same time. <laughs> It was silly, but I was impressed that they never had to remind one another what any of the terms meant. They had created and memorized them together. Time can have many rhythms, and rhythms can take on many meanings. Writing about the demoralization of work through processes like Taylorism, sociologist Richard Sennett has observed that, quote, routine can demean, but it can also protect. Routine can decompose labor, but it can also compose a life. It can be the construction of ritual, the way that the rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel called the Sabbath a palace that we build in time. Like the lights of the red light, green light game, the botanical garden had been composed and choreographed. Different spots had different characters. Things grew in different shapes and sizes and flowered at different times. The garden represented one set of gardeners' views about what kinds of arrangements would make up a harmonious whole, and visitors lingered in the parts they liked. While it wasn't a large space, the garden was dense, a space not just of biodiversity, but of chronodiversity, inviting the human subject into conversations with different modes and speeds of life. Here, it was not only clear that time was not money, but that the category of not money could be infinitely elaborated. Would it be possible not to save and spend time, but to garden it by saving, inventing, and stewarding different rhythms of life? And wouldn't this simply be an acknowledgement and use of the chronodiversity that already exists for all of us on some level, individually or communally? The sociologist Barbara Adam, who has written about standardized economic time, also knows that its dominance is as incomplete as it is unintuitive. Quote, tempo and intensity surround us at every level. We know that a birthday tomorrow can feel like an eternity to a little child, while a birthday one year ago can seem like only yesterday to an old person. The dormant period of winter is followed by a burst of growth in spring. Our social time, as it emerges from common usage, is inseparable from the rhythms of the earth. Complexity reigns supreme. If time can be gardened, then it's also possible to imagine its increase in ways other than individual hoarding. Before I left my friend's garden, she gave me some scarlet runner beans from a bean farm that no longer exists. 
They're now sitting on a metal shelf next to the store-bought beans that Joe and I, like many other people, started stocking up on during the pandemic. I've had so much time to look at and think about beans, but I never considered what they actually were. I googled, can you plant store-bought beans? And the answer was yes. Those things in the bags, they weren't just commodities. Sure, you could eat them, but they weren't endpoints and they weren't dead. At least some of them contained something, the possibility of future beans. As I told more friends about this story, it became an inside joke, a new familect. Time is not money, time is beans. <laughs> it was as serious as many jokes are, which is to say about half. Saying it meant that you could take time and give time, but also that you could plant time and grow more of it and that there were different varieties of time. It meant that all your time grew out of someone else's time, maybe out of something someone planted long ago. It meant that time was not the currency of a zero-sum game and that sometimes the best way for me to get more time would be to give it to you and the best way for you to get some would be to give it back to me. If time were not a commodity, then time, our time, would not be as scarce as it seemed just a moment ago. Together, we could have all the time in the world. Um, I might ask you about this, the alternative to the invasive species of time, because despite how prevalent and dominant that uh, has become, uh, there are other visions of time and perspectives on time that have persisted. Um, and you particularly um, talk about perspectives from um, First Nations writers and thinkers and activists, people like Tyson Yunker Porter, who is phenomenal, the author of Sand Talk. Um, and we were talking earlier about Alexis Wright as well, who, who spoke um, here on, on Tuesday night. Uh, uh, she's a, a one-year author, and she talked about the idea of First Nations people belonging to all times on this continent. Um, and her, her words, you got to hear her speak in Brisbane. Um, she, she said that, that First Nations people live in the infinite clock of country and that the challenge of writing the all times is necessary right now because we need to think of time on a different scale because our work is to continue the importance of our world foreverness. Uh, can you talk a bit about the way uh, you have drawn on First Nations traditions to, to help us reset our perspective on time and, and what we can all take away from that as well. Yeah, I, I think there were probably two really big influences for me in terms of, yeah, the, the reading that I did of Indigenous scholars and, and activists. Um, and one was just kind of what I was saying earlier about the, the like, what is a clock? Right. Like um, seeing the changes in an environment um, that are so interlinked, like there's an amazing anecdote from um, from Sandtalk about the silky oak tree having the same name uh, or having a name that has the word for eel in it. And that has the wood has the same grain as eel meat and it flowers in the same time that the eel eel meat is the most medicinal for winter fevers and like this that it, you can't separate meaningfully separate any of those things. And so um, the clock is the wrong word, but like some kind of understanding of a procession of events um, being what time is like not not uh, not even tr needing to translate that into like, oh, does that happen in February or March? No, like that is the primary sense of what time is, um, but also obviously a sense of non-human agency. I mean, one of my favorite sources in the entire book is this book, a uh, paper by uh, George Tinker, who's a North American indigenous author um, about why rocks are alive. And it's just this very logically argued paper about why rocks are alive, 
Um, and like, and the fact that it's very arrogant um, at a time when we don't even, we can't even explain what consciousness is to assume that rocks don't have it. Mm. Um, and so that's kind of uh, in terms of like uh, what I was saying earlier about what and who has experience. Um, a lot of that for me was, you know, uh, inspired by that type of writing. Thank you. Oh, we have a question over here. What are your thoughts around how priorities now are affecting the way we're using time? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it makes me think of uh, the, there's a study actually in the book that I cite. Um, it was done by, I don't know, not a sociologist, but someone like management studies maybe, um, where they went into an engineering firm and, they, and for their own purposes, because they were doing the study, um, they instituted something called quiet time. And during quiet time, which was at a set time, maybe a couple times a week, um, you weren't allowed to maybe like email other people or bother other people. It was quiet time. Um, everyone loved quiet time. They very quickly rearranged all of their work to, to take advantage of it. And then the, the person conducting the study left and everybody wanted to keep quiet time and they couldn't. And the, the official language was like it didn't align with the priorities of the company. And it's like, well, it's no secret what the <laughs> priority of a company is, right? It's like... Um, like, and it, I just found that to be really like, uh, uh, you know, uh, illuminating in terms of like, oh, you had your nice little experiment, but now we're back to like our priorities. Right. Um, and I think like, that's, that's a really big, um, it's sometimes it's like the, the priority is like the elephant in the room. Right. Like I, I've also written, I wrote an op-ed in 2019. Um, it was like a back to school op-ed about how us, you know, teachers were responsible for creating, changing the priorities in our classroom to um, be less about productivity and more about, you know, um, experimentation and learning, you know, I was teaching art. Um, but even as I was writing that, I remember thinking, well, I'm an adjunct, so I can't, I can only get away with so much, right? Um, like I could, I could just not be asked back. The art department is always being asked to answer for like what utility they're giving, they're providing to their students. The school is trying to remain competitive Right, like at some point you will run into that priority mm -hmm. um, that is kind of hanging over everything. So um, that's, and that seems like it's just important to acknowledge that, right? Yeah. Well, now that priority of us finishing on time <laughs> has overwhelmed the priority of hearing from you who lent us a book, but hopefully <laughs> being first in the queue, um, you'll be able to ask Jenny your question directly. Everyone, please thank Jenny Adol. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.